Well, good evening again. If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to open it up to John chapter 6. Most of y'all probably know me by now. My name is Will Faison. I'm the youth pastor here. Me and Jared are holding down the fort while everybody's traveling the world. So Cliff will be back with us this coming Sunday. We're excited for uh, his return. We're thankful once again just for the opportunity he has to serve in Zambia. We're thankful also for the support this church has given him over the many years in doing that. Uh, if you were with us this morning, you had the opportunity to hear from Dr. Lamar Holly. Many of y'all were familiar with Lamar. Uh, his connection with me goes back before I was even born. He married my parents, and uh, he was the one that did my baby dedication. And then uh, I also, a while back, about a year or so ago, I actually got to uh, participate in a funeral with him and help lead that. So my connection with Lamar goes way back as well as many of yours does. So we were thankful that he could come and, and join us this morning. Um, I have the great privilege of preaching to you tonight. Uh, Jared has been leading us in worship. We're thankful for his ability to do that and filling in for Jonathan. Jonathan is safely overseas, um, and he is enjoying the uh, United Kingdom and serving over there. If you are on Facebook, you can actually look at his webpage, and they've been sharing videos of their concerts and things like that. Uh, you can go and watch them and see some of the performances that they're doing uh, in England and Wales and all the areas over there. So he'll be back with us in about two weeks. So uh, everyone's traveling, but soon to be returning. Uh, so we're thankful that we can be here tonight uh, with y'all. Uh, we are wanting to continue in our series looking through the seven signs of Jesus Christ. If you've been with us the last several weeks or months, you notice that we've walked through beginning in John chapter 2 and making our way through these signs that John records for us in his gospel. As we look to these signs, we've realized that the whole purpose of these signs, just to remind ourselves of why they are written, is to point us to Jesus Christ. John writes his gospel telling us that he wants us to know who Jesus Christ is, particularly that he wants us to know that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And so God, John's gospel, not only the signs themselves that he records, but also, also the gospel as a whole is meant to draw us to belief in Jesus Christ. John says in chapter 20 in his purpose statement, I write these things and I record these signs so that you would believe in Jesus Christ and by believing you would have life in his name. Meaning that by believing in Christ, by accepting him as that promised Messiah, as the Son of God, as our Lord and Savior, we have eternal life. Not just eternal existence, but eternal life. Life with the Father and the Son through his sacrifice. And so my desire this evening, as always, as we've been walking through these, is that as we examine this miraculous sign, a sign that if you have been in church is likely familiar to you, but as we examine this, that it would point us to the magnificence of our Savior, that we would be reminded of the magnitude of who he is, that we would reflect on that time where maybe we accepted him as Lord and Savior and we saw him working in our lives or we heard the gospel for the first time or maybe tonight will be the first time you hear the gospel and our challenge is that you would begin to see the magnificence of our Savior, the love that he gives us through the cross. We would see tonight that um, his ability uh, far exceeds human ability, 
that he is able to do the impossible, that he is able to do uh, what seems hopeless, that oftentimes he takes situations that seem like they're hopeless, they seem like there is no way to solve them, and yet he figures out those situations in ways that we cannot understand on our own. And so whatever situation we find ourselves in tonight, we have to trust in Christ and step out in faith. And so this is a story of looking to Christ to supply needs, something as simple as providing a meal for individuals. But then we think through this as application as we walk through the text is, how is God supplying my needs in my life? Whatever situation I'm in this evening, whether it's in suffering or sorrow or joy or happiness or plenty, wherever we're at, am I trusting in Christ? Am I stepping out in faith? And am I, am I looking to him to provide what I need in life? And then as we walk through this passage, we're going to see that God often and Jesus often rattles our expectations. That the things that we expect to happen in life, the things that we would expect to, to happen and occur often, he does far more than we could even imagine. And oftentimes he looks to use us as his followers, as his disciples, to minister to others in a way that seems impossible in our human minds. That he looks to us, his people, his church, the believers, the people that are gathered here tonight in order to go out and show the gospel to a watching and dying world. And so we want to look at John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15 this evening. If you don't have a Bible, you can reach out in front of you in the pew. There should be a Bible there. It may be on the screen as well, uh, or you can track along as I read it out loud. But John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15 says this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted... And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. There's something unique about this sign in the Gospel of John. If you're familiar with the, the Gospel accounts in the Bible, you would realize that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this sign. It is one of the only signs other than the resurrection that is, that is uh, written about in every single one of the Gospels. 
And so if you want to go back and look at those at uh, a certain time, you can, but uh, we're going to look briefly at some of those writings in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as we look at the broader picture of this story and what's exactly taking place. But uh, Matthew records it in chapter 14, verses 13 to 21, if you want to reference that later. In Mark, Mark's account records it in chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. And then Luke also records in his gospel account in chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. So there's a, there's a significance to this sign. Not only does John record it, but all of the gospel accounts record it. And so there must be a reason why it is there. And so as we look at our text this evening, I kind of want to divide it up into four main sections. I kind of want to give you a, a big picture, a quick overview of where we're going tonight so that you can track along with me. And then what we're going to do is look at each of these individual sections in more depth as we walk through the text tonight. So we have four main sections that we want to look at this evening. The first that we're going to look at is the scene. The scene, the context of what's going on in this passage, that scene in verse 1 through 5. And then after we look at the scene, we're going to see that there is a problem. And so secondly, the problem, we see that in verses 5 to 6. Thirdly, we're going to look at the solution in verses 7 to 13. And then fourthly, we will look at the response in verses 14 to 15. And that response is twofold. One, we will look at the crowd's response in verse 14. And then also we'll look at Jesus' response in verse 15. And as we conclude, we'll look at some application to that text and what do those mean for each of us tonight. So we look at uh, the scene. We see Jesus arriving on the side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. He's got this large crowd following him up, and they see the signs that he's doing. So the people have heard about the things that he's done. They likely have heard that he's turned water into wine. They've heard that he has healed the official son. They've seen possibly the lame man who was by the pool walking around, running and jumping with joy. And so these people come up and they follow Christ. And so Jesus has gone up on this mountain or this hillside with his disciples and he sits down. We see the Passover is coming, the Feast of the Jews, so it's likely springtime. And so he lifts up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, he then moves into the sign that we will see tonight. And so John begins this section of Scripture with a statement. He says, after this. This is found a lot in John as you read it. You'll see this statement, after this. This is not designating any specific period of time. We're not saying that there's a specific time that has occurred between the last chapter and this. But what we are saying is that there has been some time has passed. Scholars believe that most likely between six months and a year have passed between the things that have gone on in chapter 5 and what's happening in chapter 6. And so what's taking place for Jesus as he's heading to the other, sea, other side of the Sea of Galilee? What is going on here? If you were to look at Mark's account, as I referenced earlier, if we kind of look at all of these together in a broad picture, comparing these stories to each other, we would see that in Mark we find that John the Baptist has just been beheaded by King Herod. And then we also see that according to Luke, that the, during this, uh, this murder of John, that the disciples had been sent out on this preaching journey, this preaching and missionary journey. They were sharing the gospel. They were preaching of the kingdom of God. And so they are sent out. And so Jesus here is seeking to not only gather his disciples back and to kind of regroup and to talk about the things that have occurred, but then he's also wanting to gather and just mourn the loss of his cousin John the Baptist. He's grieving. 
You think about a time where, where you've uh, had a sorrowful experience and most likely you don't want to be in the middle of a crowd. You want to be pulled away. You want to, to go into solitude. And so this is the picture that we have. It's a, a difficult time in Jesus' life and his disciples. They see that, that John the Baptist is gone and he has died. And so they attempt to withdraw from the crowds. Matthew tells us in chapter 14, verses 13 to 14, regarding this beheading of John, it says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. So in the midst of mourning over John's death, Jesus and his disciples are surrounded by this multitude of people. They seek to do one thing, but while they seek to do that, all of a sudden these people begin showing up. And so Matthew and Mark, in their accounts, they both speak of the fact that Jesus has compassion on these people. And so in his compassion, he begins to teach the crowds, this multitude of people, about the kingdom of God, and he begins to heal their sick. And so he sees a need, and he sees that need, even though he would probably likely to, he would prefer solitude, he reaches out to that need. And so he arrives on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, pulling away from the crowds, grieving over John, but yet the crowds find him. And John makes a statement. He says that it is, he's moving to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. This isn't just a, a, a random fact. What he's saying here is he's giving us details as to when this happened and where it happened. These are, this is a historical story. This isn't something that's made up. And so John is writing this saying it's known as the Sea of Galilee, but it's also another name. If you were to look into biblical scholarship, you would see that it is called the Sea of Tiberias. And this is a name that was named after the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar by Herod Antipas. And so we know of the Sea of Galilee, it's not actually a sea, it's just a large freshwater lake. It's about 13 miles long and about 8 miles wide. And so you think in this time, a a lake that large looks like a sea. And so this is the context, this is the scene in which Jesus finds himself. And so Jesus arrives next to the Sea of Galilee. He goes up. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. He cures those in need of healing. And then all of a sudden we arrive at this opportunity for a miracle. So we have the scene. The scene is set. And now we see the problem in verses 5 to 6. The latter part of verse 5 says this. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. And so we see more of the problem if you go back and take a look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of this miracle, we see that there are two issues that are occurring uh, in this context. The first is that Jesus, having compassion and healing the sick and teaching, unfortunately he's not a Baptist, he doesn't stick within the 30-minute time frame of teaching, all of a sudden he's been teaching and preaching and healing all day long. And next thing they know, the day is late, it's evening. They've arrived probably early in the morning, and so the day has gotten away from them, and it's become late. And not only is it late, but they're in an area that is desolate. They're in an area that doesn't have any food for them, and so there's this problem that it's evening, the people are hungry, they've sat through the messages, and they've, they've seen the, the, the people get healed, and they become hungry. And so there's no time for them to travel to another area and to get some food and to continue ministering to the people Um, It must have been Sunday because the Chick-fil-A was closed or it was nowhere to be found. And so they're in this area where there's no food. There's no provision for them. 
And so Jesus realizes that there's a need, that there's a problem, and so he poses this question to his disciple, Philip. He said, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And so Jesus is aware of the problem. He's not asking the, the question not knowing what's going to occur. He's asking the question because he knows what he is about to do. This is a test for Philip. He's wanting to see, Philip, are you going to look to me to fix the problem, or are you going to look for a solution by yourself? Are you going to look to yourself to solve the problem? Which then brings us to the proposed solutions in verses 7 to 13. So Philip answers him according to this problem. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And so the disciples face this problem. They begin to come up with a solution. Matthew, once again, in his account, if you were to go back in chapter 14, you would see that the first solution that they are given is to send them away. Matthew says this in verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 15, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, so it's late in the evening, part of the problem, and then it's also desolate, there's no food. He says, The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So the first solution is, look, Jesus, these people are hungry. It's late. Let's just go ahead and send them home. They can get food on their own. We can be done for the day. They can go away. But then in John's account, Jesus looks to Philip and he asks him this question, where are we going to find bread for these people? And so Philip's solution is a monetary solution. Philip starts crunching numbers. He starts looking at the people. He starts figuring things out. He must have been a good mathematician. And so he says, well, even if we could get 200 denarii, they would not even be able to feed these people except a little. What he's saying is, even if we had this much money, we could barely give each person a bite. 200 denarii was equivalent to eight months of wages. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, well, Jesus, this is what I've calculated. If we could all go work for eight months and come back, we could at least give them a bite of food. They couldn't have a meal, but they could have a bite. And so what Philip sees is he sees a hopeless and impossible situation. He looks at it. He's crunched the numbers. He's figured out the, the issue. He's assessed the situation. And so he justifies that hopelessness and impossibility with his failing monetary solution. He says, look, we, we'd have to work for eight months to feed these people. There is no way that we can give them food. And so Philip, like many of us, rather than focusing on Jesus... He focuses on the problem. His solution is that the problem, or his solution to the problem is hopelessness. He says it's a hopeless situation. There's no way that we can solve this. There's no way that we can do this. The third solution, so we see send them away. That's the first solution. The second solution by Philip is go and work for eight months and we can give them at least a bite of food. The third solution is then offered by Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and his solution is still a little doubtful, but he, he's at least moving in the right direction. And so Andrew sees that there's a need. He sees that there's a problem. So he kind of goes throughout the crowd trying to assess the situation, figure out what he can come up with. And so he finds this boy who has five loaves of barley bread and two fish, and he presents it to Jesus. 
And so we have this typical meal of a poorer individual from society. This would have been uh, fi the five loaves. Wouldn't, don't, don't picture a big loaf of bread. Picture more of a, a small cake, a small wafer, and then two fish would have been either dried or pickled. And so this is a hardly, it's hardly a gourmet meal. This is just, this little boy has, has realized, hey, I might be out a little late. I need to have a meal. I need to have something to at least give me a little sustenance. And so like Philip, Andrew presents this and he says, all right, look, I found this boy. He's got this small meal, but I understand it's highly inadequate for the massive need of the people. There's no way that this is going to work. And so Andrew's solution to the problem is hopelessness as well. He says, look, I've looked around. This is what I've got. It'll barely feed this boy. It'll barely satisfy his cravings and his hunger. And so both of these solutions and the solution given by the other disciples serves to kind of heighten the immensity of this miracle that's about to take place. We see the mass need that is there. We see the quantity of, of food that has to be provided. We see the, you know, it goes through the human thought process. All right, what could I buy? What can I find? What if I just send them away? All the things that naturally come to our minds. But then, thankfully, there's a fourth solution. And that's the one that is proposed by Jesus. Picking back up in verse 10, it says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down and about, and about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And so after the disciples failed attempts to solve the problem, Jesus offers up the final solution. He doesn't look to human effort to fix the problem. Instead of, he looks to himself. He looks to his messiahship. He looks to the fact that he is truly the son of God. He sees the impossible situation. He realizes that humanly, it is impossible. But the narrative, it, there, there is no justification to say that there is a way to supply the need for this vast amount of people with food. There are no resources. It's late. It's desolate. The disciples have nothing to contribute. He's look at, looked at his friends. He said, hey, find out what we can do. They come back empty-handed saying, there's nothing for us to do for these people. And so this is what we find out in the passage, that Jesus makes the impossible possible that he makes the impossible possible. He proceeds by telling his disciples to have the people sit down on the grass. Mark would even mention that the grass was green. In Mark's account, he says the people sat down on green grass. The reason for that is it's a personal recollection of detail. It confirms that this event has taken place. It confirms for us as well as John's account that this happened in March or April, which would have been the time of the Passover. And so all of this is just reminding us that this is a historical event. This is something that actually occurred in history. This isn't just something made up for us. Mark and Luke would go on to say that as the people sat down, Jesus had them sit in groups of 50 and 100. And so that is likely how they were able to see how many people were there and what the need was. And so we begin to see the vastness of the need. There are around 5,000 men there. So to count back then, they would just count the men that were there. And so if you were to look at the actual number, most people believe that the number would be between 15 to 20,000, even upwards to 25,000 people if you counted women and children. Either way, 5,000 or 25,000 
it is not humanly possible to feed these people on five loaves of bread and two fish unless Jesus is the one doing it. And so he takes these loaves, he takes these fish, and he gives thanks to God. He doesn't thank the food, he thanks God for what has been received, even if it was minute, even if it was small, even if it was insignificant, he thanks the Lord for what has been given. He then gives it to his disciples and they begin to distribute them to the people. And the amazing thing is the people had as much as they wanted. Philip realized that even 200 denarii, eight months of wages, wouldn't even supply a little bite. But John tells us that the people had all that they wanted, that they were completely satisfied. The disciples are then commanded to gather up the leftovers and fill 12 baskets. And so we see here not only does Jesus meet the needs of the people, but he also supplies it in excess. They weren't just barely scraping by. They didn't just eat and barely get by. No, they had 12 baskets left over. And so from five loaves and two fish, they have enough to feed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, and yet they still have 12 baskets left over. Jesus makes the impossible possible. Fourthly, we see the response. We see the crowd's response, and then we see Jesus' response as well. And so we have this scene taking place. We see that there's a problem. We see the solution that Jesus ultimately offers. And then look at what happens immediately following in chapter 6, verse 14. It says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people are aware of the miracle. Jesus didn't keep this one in secret. He, he made it obvious what was going on. And so the people look to this. They see that their need is met. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they are satisfied. And so they respond in amazement and awe. And they rightly claim that Jesus is this prophet who is to come. They're referencing here Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where it says, The Lord your God will raise, you up, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses speaking. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And so the people see the magnificence of Jesus and they say, This man is the prophet that we have been looking to. He is the one that Moses spoke about. To our forefathers, he is this predicted prophet, but their response to this revelation is misplaced. They understand that he is this promised prophet, but they see his abilities and they desire him to be king. You see, they had this desire, they were hungry, and they were satisfied. And so because of this, you can imagine their thought process. Look, if this guy can feed us till we're full and satisfied... What could he do? What else could he do? If he can feed 5,000 or 20,000 or 25,000, then surely he can overthrow the Roman, Roman government. And so we see the Jews were, were under the impression of the Romans, and so they always had this, <clears throat> excuse me, they always had this desire to be away from that Roman government, that they would be released from that bondage. They wanted to have a king who would come in and have an earthly kingdom. And so their desire wasn't for the spiritual kingdom to come. Their desire was for an earthly one. But yet Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Roman government. He came instead to be their spiritual king. He would say in John chapter 18, verse 36, when he's speaking to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. You can almost picture Jesus thinking about this situation. You know, if I wanted to overthrow your government, I had thousands upon thousands upon thousands on the hillside waiting for me to tell them to overthrow your government. If my desire was political upheaval, then I could have done it. But guess what? That is not my purpose. My purpose on earth is not for political upheaval. My purpose is something else, and it is this. We look at Jesus' response. Jesus wasn't worried about Rome. He was worried about lost souls. He sees their desire for revolution. He sees this, and he withdraws. He doesn't want to be their political king. He wants to be their spiritual king. His war wasn't against Rome and its oppressive hand. His war was against sin and suffering and death. And so we have this picture of this new Moses coming in and shepherding God's people in the wilderness, in a desolate land, and leading them on to a new exodus. But yet the people have this picture in their mind of Jesus doing this through the Roman government, releasing them from their oppressive government, but instead he is coming to release them from the oppressive rule of sin. He knew that his kingdom was not going to be ushered in by some conquering of the Roman Empire, but instead it was going to be ushered in by him dying and being raised from the dead. You see, the crowd focused on the product of the miracle rather than the person. They focused on the product of the miracle rather than the person. They didn't look to Jesus as their Savior and King. They looked to to him as what he could supply for their needs, for their desires, for their satisfaction. You see, Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom of God. He had been teaching them. He had compassion on them. He's healing their sick. But yet they focus continually on the earthly kingdom. How often do we do this as well? How often do we get caught up in our own earthly kingdom, building our empire rather than bringing the glory of God to the world? C.S. Lewis once wrote, It seems that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. The people miss the opportunity to find fulfillment in Christ, to seek, they they decide to, to seek earthly benefits over the eternal. They look at what they can get through him rather than looking to him. They get caught up in their fleshly desires. And we we somewhat aren't surprised by this. If you look back at the passage, the reason why they're following Jesus is because they're seeing the signs and the miracles. They're following him because they have this desire for him to be this temporal provider, this magical genie, this person that they can say, here's my need, give it to me. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Gimme what I want. Gimme what I desire. Gimme what I can have now. But yet Jesus comes to be the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into this world to deliver us from our sins. And so he's not going to allow them to make him king because they wanted it and desired it. He doesn't let our desires to fulfill our temporal satisfaction lead him and guide him. He seeks to offer salvation for your soul. John MacArthur states it this way, people do not come to Christ for what they want. They come to Christ for what he demands. He calls on sinners to mourn for their sin, to be broken, 
penitent. Acknowledge him as sovereign Lord. Be obedient to him. Live for him. Maybe die for him. And so as we get ready to close this evening, the passage reveals to us many points of application. It's a story that reveals to us once again that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is divinity, that he is truly the Son of God. So there are several things that we can draw from this story in our own lives as we pause and we reflect on this passage. The first is this, that oftentimes compassion and ministry to others is inconvenient. Oftentimes compassion and ministry to others is inconvenient. Jesus ministered to the crowds and he fed the thousands when it wasn't convenient. His cousin John the Baptist has been beheaded. His disciples have been out on this preaching mission. He wants to gather with them and talk to them and to kind of regroup as a group of people. And he wants to withdraw and mourn the death of John the Baptist. And yet the crowds show up. The need was present. And although the timing was inconvenient, he ministered to their needs and he showed them compassion. And so as believers, we have to realize that there are times that we are going to be called to show compassion to others in times of inconvenience. That ministry is messy. That ministering to others is inconvenient. That it requires sacrifice, but it is what Jesus calls us to as believers. And so tonight, my challenge for you is to ask God to give you opportunities to serve even when it's inconvenient. Even when it calls to cause you to give up things that you may want or desire. Oftentimes, compassion and ministry to others is inconvenient. Secondly, trust that God can make the impossible possible. Trust that God can make the impossible possible. Don't rely on human wisdom and abilities alone. Philip and Andrew sought to meet the need, but they felt hopeless. Their downfall was that they didn't look to Christ. Over and over and over again, they've seen these signs, they've seen these miracles, they see exactly what Jesus can do, and yet they get caught up in the situation, looking at the immensity and enormity of their problem, and they miss the ability and compassion of the Savior. So what situation are you in today that seems impossible? Paul would say in Ephesians that he could do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And so we're called to trust in him to do what only he can do. We have to be reminded this evening that there is no problem that we face, no situation that we will enter into that is too large or too hopeless for God to handle. Trust that God can make the impossible possible. Thirdly, a lack of resources doesn't hinder Jesus. A lack of resources doesn't hinder Jesus. Don't make excuses when it comes to your Christian life and mission. We can tell ourselves, I'm not smart enough, I'm not old enough, I'm, I'm too old, I'm too poor, I don't have what it takes. We can look at what we lack or we can offer up what we have been given. We can look at what we lack and we can look at our resources and we say, I don't have enough, I'm not enough. Or we can offer up to Christ what we've been given. Jesus takes five loaves of barley bread and two pickled and dried fish, and he fed thousands. What could he do with your life tonight if you would simply offer it up to him? What could he do in and through you for this world and for his glory? 
We are called to offer up our time and our talents and our treasures as believers to be used by God in whatever way is possible. And so my challenge for you tonight is to do that. He desires to use exactly what he's given you in order to glorify him. And so don't think, I'll I'll serve him when I get to this age. I'll serve him when I get to, to this bank account. I'll serve him when I get to this stage of life when it's convenient or whatever excuse is coming to your mind. Instead, realize that no matter how insignificant your resources seem, God can do that, use them for his glory and for your good. And fourthly, challenge for all of us is to look to Christ, the bread of life. Jesus fed the 5,000 through a miracle, but the next day they still woke up hungry. They still had to have another meal. And Jesus offers us a better bread. He would say later in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so tonight, Jesus offers you eternal life through his sinless life, through his death on the cross, and through his resurrection from the tomb. And so we look to him for salvation of our souls tonight. We come to him for eternal salvation and satisfaction, knowing that he has built a kingdom not of this world, but a spiritual kingdom. And we hope and desire and pray that we too would be a part of that kingdom. And we know that we can be tonight if we would look to the cross, if we would submit our life to him if we would come to him as the bread of life. Please join me in prayer. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. And God, so oftentimes we get so caught up in the busyness of life and the things that are going on that we forget the magnificence of our Savior. God, we forget his ability to work even in the minute resources that we have. But God, may we be like you. May we be your people. May we be a people of compassion and ministry, even when it's inconvenient. God, may we look to you to realize that you can do the impossible, that you can make it possible. And God, that you are the bread of life, that you provide salvation for us, that you call us to look to you, not for temporal satisfaction, not to fill our needs, not for a magical genie, but God, you look to us. We, we, we're called to look to you to have a relationship with you and to have eternal life. And so, God, if there's someone here this evening that has not done that, God, I pray that you would stir in their heart through the power of your spirit. And for those of us, God, who have done that, God, I pray that we would continue to look to you. God, that we wouldn't get caught up in the situations of life and the, the minute resources that we may have, but, God, that we would look at whatever situation we're in, that we would say, God, you are capable to do, capable to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.